PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the CrickCast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Crick. Hello, this is Rebecca Crick, Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I welcome you to the December issue. There are a few things that I would like to tell you before we get started. First of all, we have inline video. So if you go to the October issue, it's the first place where you can see the opportunity not to download the video and then to view it, but to view it directly. If you have an iPhone or an iPad, a full text app of physical therapy will be available. And finally, if you're a Nook or a Kindle reader, there's an EPUB version of the journal that's up and coming. Now, the first article is entitled, Exercise for Prevention of Recurrences of Nonspecific Low Back Pain. The authors, Luciana Gatsi-Macedo and Jeff Bostic, are from the University of Alberta in Canada, and they co-authored this paper with Chris Mayer from Sydney, Australia. I think that you're all familiar now with the Linking Evidence and Practice articles. This Cochrane Review looked at the recurrence of nonspecific low back pain. The article concludes that there's moderate evidence that post-treatment exercises were more effective than no intervention for reducing the number of patients with recurrent low back pain. The next article by Suzanne O'Brien and colleagues is entitled, Shorter Length of Stay is Associated with Worse Functional Outcomes for Medicare Beneficiaries with Stroke. The authors include physical therapists, nurses, and a physician. This is a very timely and important article. The authors looked at a large federal database of Medicare beneficiaries. In fact, 371,211 patients in 1,649 inpatient rehab facilities. The authors examined five and a half years of data, and although the title suggests that there is a shorter length of stay associated with worse functional outcomes for Medicare beneficiaries with stroke, the discussion really suggests that that conclusion cannot fully be supported by the evidence to date. There's certainly a trend over the five and a half years of the study. Inpatient rehabilitation stay was reduced by 1.8 days, and that scores on the functional independence measure, which many of you know is a FIM, declined as well. But there are a lot of other issues that have to be taken into account before we make a very strong conclusion. So I thank the authors for this substantial and significant beginning to provide answers to questions related to the impact of healthcare reimbursement on healthcare outcomes. The next article is entitled Prognosis and Course of Disability in Patients with Chronic Nonspecific Low Back Pain, a 5- and 12-month follow-up cohort study. The authors include Karen Verkirk from the Institute of Healthcare at Rotterdam University of Applied Sciences and Spine and Joint Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. This is a study that looks at long-term follow-up, so five and 12 months. The outcome tool that is used to examine the patient's progress is the Quebec Back Pain Disability Inventory. 
It's a 20-item self-administered instrument that I think if you're not aware of, you might find to be very interesting. The good news is that the authors suggest that the disability in patients with chronic low back pain continue to decline over a 12-month period. So I think you'll find this a good article to review. The next article is entitled Exploring Differences in Pain Beliefs Within and Between a Large Non-Clinical Population and a Clinical Population Using the Pain Beliefs Questionnaire. The authors are Andrew Baird, who is in the Center for Psychological Research at the University of Derby in the United Kingdom, and Roger Haslam, who is at the Work and Health Research Center at Longborough University in the United Kingdom. I found this a really thoughtful paper. The authors are not physical therapists. The authors are individuals who are interested in understanding more about pain. So for many of you, you understand that the biomedical model is certainly what has been emphasized previously, and that is that pain is caused for a physiologic reason and that if you move, you create more tissue damage, which leads to more pain. Certainly in our journal and throughout the literature, there's been a very large emphasis on expanding the view beyond biomedical to consider psychosocial factors that might also play into a chronic condition such as low back pain. So I really am thankful to the authors for a very thoughtful paper. The next article is Sleep Enhances Learning of a Functional Motor Task in Young Adults. The two authors are from the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City, Alham Alshaman and Catherine Sinksukin. As an instructor who teaches neuroscience and who has had a long-standing interest in sleep, I've always told our students that if they're sleep-deprived, they're going to have more difficulty learning the content in the classroom or the skills in the laboratory. The authors take a very small, healthy sample of 24 and they randomly assigned them to a sleep group or a non-sleep group. They then exposed them to a novel walking task. The authors then sleep-deprive one group and do not sleep-deprive the other group, and what they found is that there were significantly more errors in the group that was sleep-deprived. The next paper is entitled, A Physical Function Test for Use in the Intensive Care Unit, Validity, Responsiveness, and Predictive Utility of the Physical Function ICU Test. First author is Linda Dennehy. She and her co-authors are all from Victoria, Australia. I hope that many of you had the opportunity to look at the December 2012 and the February 2013 issues that were related to critical care. One of the concerns that the authors expressed in the special series on critical care was the lack of a really solid tool to use in the intensive care unit. The authors did a lovely job describing how the test was used in the ICU, and I really do encourage you to consider the use of this tool in clinical practice. The next paper is entitled Physical Therapy Interventions for Degenerative Lumbar Spinal Stenosis, a Systematic Review. The first author is Luciana Gazzi Macedo. She and her colleagues are all from the University of Alberta in Canada. This is a very important topic. Should patients with lumbar spinal stenosis have physical therapy or should they have surgery or is there a timing when one should precede the other? 
So the authors did a systematic review to try to answer that question. And I hope that you understand that there's not a lot of evidence for the authors to come up with a really solid conclusion about whether surgery or physical therapist intervention is more effective. I want to emphasize that this is not a poor systematic review. From my perspective, what the authors are doing is calling investigators to conduct well-designed clinical trials to answer this very important question. The next paper is entitled Perspectives of Academic Faculty and Clinical Instructors on Entry-Level DPT Preparation for Pediatric Physical Therapist Practice. The team is led by Lisa Kenyon from Grand Valley State University. The investigators were interested in identifying essential knowledge, skills, and abilities required for physical therapist practice and then identifying which knowledge, skills, and abilities were required or recommended for entry-level physical therapist education. As a chair of a physical therapy program, however, I have to say that I'm overwhelmed with the amount of information that we are expected to include in an entry-level program. For many years, we've tried to decide what we don't need to teach, and that's the most difficult. So these authors have done a spectacular job telling us what should be included in the pediatric component of our curriculum, but nobody really writes a paper and says, here are all the things that we need to throw out. So I really encourage someone to consider looking at that question. The next paper entitled Tools for Observational Gait Analysis in Patients with Stroke, a Systematic Review, was written by Francesco Ferrarello and colleagues from the University of Florence and Azienda Hospital in Florence, Italy. The authors do a systematic review looking at a number of tools that are titled Observational Gait Analysis. They're particularly interested in their use with persons with stroke. And what they conclude is that there's one entitled the Gait Assessment and Intervention Tool that showed a good level of quality and its use was recommended in persons with stroke. In listening to physical therapists present research findings, it appears that our interest has moved from just physical performance ability to looking at the quality of movement. So the question from my perspective is, do we need to develop those types of tools or should we be moving more into the use of technology? The next paper is entitled Diagnostic Accuracy of Upper Spine Instability Tests, a Systematic Review. The team is led by Nathan Hudding from the Department of Manual Therapy at the Vrie University in Brussels, Belgium. So the authors did a systematic review of a number of different tools that have been recommended or are clinically used to assess upper cervical spine instability. And the bottom line is that they weren't impressed with any of the tools. I'm not a fan of sensitivity and specificity reporting. I'm very grateful that they use likelihood ratios because for me it's easier to understand the value of the test when looking at likelihood ratios. But again, the authors report huge variation in the patients that were tested. So we need a test that's good to determine upper cervical spine instability. The next paper is entitled Spanish Version of the Broom's Pelvic Muscle Self-Efficacy Scale Validity and Reliability. Esther Sanchez and her colleagues from the University of Seville took a test that has been demonstrated to be appropriate in English and translated it into Spanish. 
The literature indicates that self-efficacy is an important predictor for success in working with a woman who has urinary incontinence. So there's now a tool that's available in both Spanish and English. The last paper is a perspective, and it's entitled Promoting Neuroplasticity for Motor Rehabilitation After Stroke, Considering the Effects of Aerobic Exercise and Genetic Variation on Brain-Derived Neurotrophic Factor. The authors are led by Cameron Mang, and the team is all of the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, BC, Canada. I would love to talk for an hour about this paper. I'm so excited that it's in the journal and that you have the opportunity to read it. It will be a separate podcast that's moderated by Dr. Jim Carey, editorial board member, so I would really like you to listen to the podcast. But step back for a moment and recognize what the implications of this perspective are. We've known for quite a while that there's a neurotrophic factor called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's a group of proteins that's involved in neuroprotection, neurogenesis, and neuroplasticity. That's been in the literature for a while. It's also known that aerobic exercise can be used to upregulate BDNF. So now take the person with stroke give them aerobic exercise, and think about the ability to upregulate BDNF in an effort to enhance the motor intervention that you're going to provide for the patient. The third aspect of this article is the genetic variant. So it appears that BDNF is different in different persons and that the single nucleotide polymorphism can affect the ability of BDNF to be effective. So this article is proposing individualized physical therapist intervention. So you know what the person's genetic makeup is, you know whether or not they have this polymorphism for BDNF, and what it might mean is that if you have the variant of BDNF, the genetic variant, that you need more exercise than someone else. So these kinds of articles and the kinds of research that are going on really might be able to allow us to get a much better outcome across a much more variable patient population. So I thank the authors for this very, very thoughtful work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craik, email ptj at apta.org and be sure to include CraikCast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio online at www.scienceaudio.net.